I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, you're listening to The BIP Show. BIP is for business, investing, and policy. That's what we're here to talk about, special focus on investing this week. Equities in particular, I am Paul Colgan, Director at CT Group. I'm here with James Whelan, Macro Strategist and Investment Manager at BFS. How are you, James? Great, Paul. Always good. Here in the studios of Redleaf and JMM, uh, Jane Morgan Management. Yes, uh, we're parking in here and we appreciate them making the space for us. Also join, joining us on the line from Amsterdam is Ken Vexler, Managing Director and Chief Investment Officer at Acumen Management. How are you today, Ken? Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Colgo. I'm well, I'm well. I'm excited to be talking about stocks, stonks, portfolios and everything else entailed. Yeah, yeah. because we're, we're here in Sydney recording this on the 20th of August, uh, 2020. Uh, by the way, don't forget to subscribe, rate us and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. Our guest is Chris Weldon, who's Portfolio Manager at Magellan Asset Management, which is one of the stars of the uh, Australian um, uh, financial industry. Um, it's got a great um, domestic and global reputation. Um, Chris manages the high conviction strategy for Magellan, which is uh, over a billion dollars. And he's also Assistant Portfolio Manager for Magellan's um, uh, uh, incredibly well, highly regarded global equity strategy. Uh, and it's what size now? Uh, that one in Aussie dollars is roughly 70, Bill. So we're delighted to have you on the show. Um, being very specific about um, uh, Magellan, uh, the the strategy that Chris, uh, you manage, um, a very clear uh, stock selection process where you go big in a small number of stocks and hold them. That's right. Yeah, the uh, the high conviction strategy by mandate is eight to twelve positions, so they're pretty chunky, uh, oh. pretty chunky investments. But that uh, is a blessing as well because we can really just wait for all the uh, the stars to align, and then we get to take some big swings. Excellent. Uh, you've got some interesting companies in there, some very well-known names uh, and some interesting names too that uh, we're going to chat about as we go through the show. Um, but uh, I know um, Ken Vexler uh, has been known to tweet from time to time, um, what's an equity, Dad? Um, yeah. and, <laughs> um, but uh, obviously uh, stocks and um, fund flows uh, are, are um, you know, a, a macro thing. They've been such an interesting, it's been such an interesting ride this year. Um, I'm delighted to be um, handing over to Ken, and he might uh, uh, set the scene and um, yeah. and have a chat to you. Yeah, appreciate that, Colgo and Chris. Welcome, uh, a pleasure to have you on. Um, look, yeah, Colgo's not wrong. I suppose you know, I somewhat comically tweet from time to time. You know, Papa, what's an equity? Only because I suppose throughout my career, while I've been you know, macro focused, it, it has had more of a tendency uh, to look at say the FX and rate side and a few other bits and pieces, a bit of credit, rather than stocks or indices as, as a consequence. So I am, you know, especially what you guys are doing at Magellan and you specifically, Chris, I am um, interested in, in drilling down into that. And I suppose, you know, as we go on, what I'd like to talk about and, and get your feedback on is, you know, uh, a sense of how you construct the portfolio, 
you know, the research process that you use and the like and the mechanics of, of actually instilling that, uh, I suppose, that, that methodology. Uh, but prior to that, I suppose, what I wanted to have a, a quick chat about, or at the very least get your feedback on it and, and sort of set the scene, is that um, having been in this, in this game for, for quite some time, north of about 20-something years, what I've noticed, at least, and, and I, I'd like to hear whether you agree or disagree, is that I suppose it, since the GFC, or at least certainly in the, in the last 10 or so years, um, if we use a, a funnel analogy, right, if we think about you know the mouth and the throat of the funnel, um, what I've noticed, and, and this is probably more so in the last few years, is that uh, the investment objectives for different classes of investors, so be it hedge funds uh, using levered money or whatever else, or pension funds, which we regard as, let's call it real money. Um, you know, group two groups that have traditionally had differing approaches and investment horizons. To my mind, uh, their, uh, not, not even objectives, but their outcomes more or less have sort of been converging quite a bit in, in recent years. Um, so if we imagine that the mouth of the funnel is is getting even large, ever larger, rather, encompassing all manner of asset classes and financial instruments. And to my mind, uh, the, the throat of, of that funnel is only getting more and more narrow as global macro and financial conditions force these varying groups of, of investors to all look at the same universe of investable assets in more or less the same way. So I suppose correlations and return profiles of, of what we're, what everyone's looking at are all tending to one. I mean. You know, you can blame uh, the monetary authorities for creating that environment. You can blame uh, the fiscal or political uh, authorities for, for, for doing similarly. But uh, I suppose what I'd like to get your, your take on is whether you agree, you disagree, whether how you perceive the macro environment has, has changed or what, what sort of things it's undergone um, and how it's uh, affected the way you look at portfolio construction investment and then you know we can sort of slip into given that that's the backdrop you know how are you actually day-to-day looking at stuff now so very long-winded but please chris thoughts there's a lot in there ken uh to unpack no i know that's uh um, i know i just i just woke up so i had a lot of <laughs> well that's the the beauty of the podcast format we've got time to unpack it uh yeah i'd say there's there's elements of that we, we'd agree with um i think probably something central uh, to your comments um, is the idea of the risk-free, right? Because so many financial assets, financial markets um, are all anchored to that risk-free interest rate. And uh, you hinted at this in your question, there's been a fair amount of uh, intervention by the Fed particularly, but other central banks uh, in terms of their asset purchasing programs and other policies they've enacted post-COVID uh, and related to COVID, but even prior to this uh, recent crisis. Um, and that is impacting all asset values. Um, as we know, that sort of the, the long-term risk-free rate acts as a sort of gravitational force on all asset prices um, and having uh, it suppressed to very low levels and potentially remaining at very low levels now for you know an extended period, that is going to inflate the value of uh, assets, all assets, um, you know, we're just taking the same amount of free cash flows and then discounting it at lower discount rates because that risk-free rate's lower. Uh, that's going to inflate every asset uh, that's cash producing over time. So I think that's probably pretty central to at least how we would we would think about it. Um, 
and that's had some impact on portfolio construction for us, you know, at Magellan over the last, I'd say the last couple of years, but particularly uh, the view more recently taken that we're likely to see these very low long-term interest rates persist now for some time. Um, oh, that, oh. that that causes us uh, and has caused us to reflect on the sort of businesses you want to hold in a portfolio and potentially some businesses you might want to avoid. Um, banks and financial uh, financials, for example, if we're in this lower for longer interest rate world and they're unable to earn a um, you know an attractive spread on say their deposit funding uh, all else equal that banking franchise is less attractive in this world compared to a prior world that had higher uh, long-term interest rates and a, and a wider net interest margin so um, yeah definitely agree with parts of uh, parts of the question there's probably frankly parts of it that we, we don't spend too much time trying to think through market structure and uh, um, the objectives of different peer groups like hedge funds and uh, pension funds. But, you know, I, I'd say we broadly agree that uh, just given central bank uh, policy changing and lowering that long-term interest rate, uh, you have seen that have uh, a quite a meaningful impact on on markets, uh, equities, of sure. course, but other asset classes as well. Uh, yeah, look, f- fair enough. And I, I understand your, your take on that and appreciate um what you're getting at. And so with that as the backdrop, I'd like to get a sense, you know, my, my next sort of question, or I'd like to get a sense of what um, the portfolio construction process looks like for you guys in, in, in general generic terms, you know, what, what sort of um, <clears throat> research process and how do you implement that um, with, with, with what you look at and how you then decide how to apply it. Yeah, you bet. Another very uh, broad question, Ken. Um, so maybe, <laughs> I'd say everything we do at Magellan, including portfolio construction, which I'll come back to, everything is grounded in the objectives that we have. And really, across Magellan and our different strategies and different portfolios, um, there's effectively two um, objective, two flavours of the different objectives we've got. The first is sort of absolute returns for clients over, over the long term. And the second is capital preservation. And really, everything that we do is anchored in those two objectives. Uh, portfolio construction included, which was where uh, your question uh, was directed. Mm. Um, so what we, I'll start with the, the global fund uh, because the high conviction strategy is uh, almost a derivative of the, the, of the broader global fund. But the global fund, we are looking to build a portfolio of sort of 20 to 40 positions, but tends to run around 25 positions of incredibly high quality businesses found anywhere around the world um, across many, many different industries and many different geographies, but incredibly high quality, by, uh, run by very high caliber management teams um, and to buy them when we think that they're at a, a meaningful discount to our assessment of intrinsic value. Um, you know, so, so our investable universe is, first of all, filtered for quality um, and we've got mm-hmm. a pretty strict um, quality filter and we can sort of get into how we define quality and um, how we vote on it and things like that. But effectively, uh, we have a, an investment committee that filters the entire investable universe to the highest quality businesses. And there's a couple of hundred businesses around the world that have passed that quality test. Uh, and that effectively, that, that, that couple of hundred businesses creates the investable universe that Hamish can then construct the global fund. Uh, and together, yep. we can construct the high conviction strategy um, just trying to then marry up wonderful businesses in terms of their quality, but try and find cheap ones at the same time, such that when you create a portfolio, 
subject to macro considerations and risk considerations and things like that, that that portfolio stands at a good chance of delivering those objectives that I mentioned earlier. Sure. And, and, that, and is that, the, um, you know, to, to narrow down that investable universe down to a couple of hundred or say 300 uh, quality companies, is that a, a model slash screener driven uh, process or are you guys, you know, the investment committee, are you guys out there physically meeting, um, not these days, but going out and doing research, meeting uh, the, the management teams of these companies and, and whatever else, or is it purely sort of, you know, data driven type analytical stuff? No, I'd say, Ken, it's a combination. Uh, we, uh, yeah. you know, we might apply some quantitative screens initially to help us start mm-hmm. screening down, you know, the thousands of listed businesses around the world. At the end of the day, we want businesses that can generate, you know, great economics for their shareholders being our clients. Uh, and so we can sort of look at metrics like return on capital, for example, just to sort of get a sense for the economics and the compounding potential of that business. So that might be a, a quantitative screen that helps narrow the universe a little. But of course, yeah. with every screen, there's there's going to be things that that misses. So we we definitely marry that quantitative approach with a lot of qualitative work, a lot of internal qualitative work. Um, and we characterize this as sort of an inch wide, mile deep research process, where because yeah. we're not covering that many securities, and it wouldn't be as high as the 300 that you mentioned, it would be even narrower sure, than that. Course. And we've got, you know, a team of 30-odd people on the investment uh, team at Magellan. Uh, We really have the the luxury of being able to go deep on certain businesses and really understand the whole ecosystem and the value chain, you know, their competitors and suppliers and customers and really understand Mm -hmm. their dominance uh, and the trajectory of their competitive position in that industry over time. Um, And uh, from that we will also more often than not meet with management. We don't require that uh, analysts or portfolio managers meet with um, a management team before investing, but, but, but naturally it, it tends to happen where, you know, we're traveling pretty often. Yeah. We'll often meet uh, CEOs, CFOs, uh, other members of the executive team, potentially board members. And we certainly keep in regular contact with those people once we are invested, but it, it needn't be a, um, a meeting that we have to have before the investment committee votes. But we do spend a lot of time thinking about what we define as agency risk, you know, which goes back to yeah. um, the management, the board, the governance structures, the capital allocation. It's a very important part of our quality assessment. There are, there are four qualitative criteria that we judge when we talk about quality, uh, and one of them is agency risk. And just for completeness, uh, the other three are economic moat, uh, really talking and thinking through the sustainability of any competitive advantage that business might have. Uh, the second would be uh, business risk, you know, sort of anything that goes towards the predictability of earnings and cash flows from that business over time. Uh, we've mentioned agency risk and the final qualitative criteria is reinvestment potential, which is, again, trying to think through a company's ability to reinvest its capital at very high rates of incremental return, effectively doing that compounding job for us yeah. and, and for our clients. So it's those four qualitative ass- uh, qualitative criteria that we're assessing for every business. If that business passes uh, and is approved by our investment committee, uh, it can then be invested in. But Hamish, nor I, nor any of the portfolio managers at Magellan can invest in any security that hasn't first been approved by the investment committee. 
Understood. Okay, fair enough. And so I suppose, you know, taking it one step forward from that base, again, within the realms of what you can and can't can and can't discuss, obviously, a lot of it's proprietary sort of stuff. But I'd be curious to get a sense of, especially in the high conviction fund, considering that the the universe, you know, and as, per, as you mentioned, per the mandate, you're only sort of in 10 or 12 stocks at any one time. Um, just I'd, I'd like to get a sense of the mechanics of getting in and potentially out of positions, you know, irrespective of the triggers, because obviously you've got the models and the decision process by which to get in and out and you've got targets, but sort of the mechanics considering that, you know, the overall size of the fund and the fact that it's a concentrated set of positions or a number of positions, meaning that the, the size of each position is, well, <laughs> politely put, significant. So I, I'm just curious, if, what, what if anything you can tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, it's, it's such a good question, Ken, and it's where you've got to give Hamish... Uh, and Chris Mackay, the two co-founders of uh, Magellan, a lot of credit because uh, from day one, they deliberately constrained our universe in two ways. The first was the quality filter that I just uh, that I just ran through. Yeah. The second filter that, that they applied from day one, and keeping in mind we weren't managing very much money back then, um, but they still applied this filter even with that much lower uh, level of assets under management at the time. Uh, they applied a, a, a liquidity filter, so a, a quality filter and a liquidity filter, such that should Magellan experience some success and the assets under management uh, might grow over time, they wouldn't have to change the investable universe. So the investable universe from day one has been uh, large cap, very liquid businesses, um, because to your point, uh, we don't want to be, um, particularly if we want to exit something quickly, it's, it's probably honestly a little less of an issue when we're entering a new position. Um, mm. But if we want to mm. shift to a very uh, aggressively shift to a risk off position for whatever reason um, and, and increase the cash and change the risk profile of the portfolio, we want to be able to do that very quickly. Uh, and that requires investing in very liquid businesses. So more directly to your question. It, it, it's worth explaining why it's harder to do that with smaller cap companies. Yeah. yeah. When, um, you know, for example, it, we don't own Apple. We've owned Apple previously, but everyone probably saw that the headlines overnight that that's now passed, you know, $2 trillion in market cap and many, many hundreds of millions of dollars of that uh, that company would trade over in the American exchanges on a daily basis. So if we wanted to go back into Apple, uh, it might only take us a day or two or three, depending on the position size um, that we wanted to make Apple, Likewise, if we wanted to get out of Apple very quickly, let's say hypothetically we became concerned around some US-China risks or something like that and we wanted to change that very quickly, that exposure within the portfolio, something large and liquid like Apple allows us to do that. A smaller cap or a mid-cap stock, they just don't doesn't have the same volume and value of turnover in their, their shares on a sort of daily or weekly basis uh, and it mm. wouldn't allow us to sort of have that same ability to move to a risk-off position as quickly as we would want to. Yeah, you couldn't offload it without significantly affecting the sure. price. Or, yeah, yeah. that's right. How, how often are you reviewing okay. the liquidity? Uh, almost in real time. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, sure. so, so for that, uh, that list of a couple of hundred businesses approved, um, we, we're sort of tracking the three-month, what's called the average daily volume. I know, I know you know that, but... 
um, the average daily volume over three months, over six months, you know, even weekly. So we've got a good sense for all of those businesses yep. how long it would take us to move in and move out. Um, but but frankly, you know, again, giving Hamish and Chris credit for their foresight, uh, we've not had any liquidity issues, even with the size of the business today, um, because of those liquidity filters applied very early on, yeah. we do have the ability to move in and out of things quite rapidly. Sure. Not that well, we are, I should just all. clarify, not that we are looking yeah. to churn and trade the portfolio, no. it's just when we, we no, feel no, like it's course. appropriate. Yeah. Good caveat. Okay, fair enough. So, so basically the liquidity, given the nature of the underlying portfolio, the liquidity of the large cap stocks means that the mechanics of it aren't necessarily any more, I suppose, convoluted or complicated than, well, we, we need to buy X, we do it, with, with as minimum impact as we can in terms of altering price, but the liquidity or the nature of the liquidity allows for minimum disruption. Fair enough. Um, lastly, I suppose, and it's something that you touched upon earlier uh, with regard, uh, you know, risk-free rates globally, certainly US risk-free rates, and, and they, they sort of, you know, they set, the fr- they set the rate and everyone catches a cold, as it were, um, being so low and perceived as being low for much longer which means that, you know, discounting cash flows and whatever else, it, it tends to lend itself to higher uh, higher asset prices and the like. So I suppose um, with that as the backdrop, my, my question is, how do you feel about, you know, real valuations? Uh, well, not, not so much real valuations, but how much has that discount rate, certainly in the US and then subsequently globally, uh, affected the valuations of companies affected the way you look at things in terms of has it really distorted things over and above what you know the underlying reality is i mean it, what's that done to to your view of things and, and portfolio construction as a consequence yeah has it has it impacted things certainly um has it distorted things i, th- I think that's interesting um and we could dig into that a little bit more um but as i look across our universe um, that very high quality universe that's been approved by the investment committee. Uh, you know, I would say we're still finding good values. They're not, um, you know, it's not shooting fish in a barrel by any stretch at the mm. moment, but we're still finding good values. And I think that speaks to, first of all, you know, we own businesses that have very durable cash flows over time um, by design. You know, that's very deliberate. Um, but then in this world, assuming we are right, and we may not be, uh, but assuming we're in this world where we have an expectation that long-term interest rates will be at, at slightly lower levels than compared to history, those businesses, in fact, all businesses, are worth more. And so it's appropriate that they might be trading on higher price earnings multiples and higher valuation multiples, for example, than they have historically because interest rates are lower than yeah. they have been historically. So some of that is justified. Whether you can argue all of the current rally, you know, let's say the rally over the last couple of months uh, in equity markets around the world is justified – um, I would find, you know, I find that hard to comment because I don't know all the businesses in those equity markets. So, you know, sure. that's, um, that's, that's beyond me. Uh, but as I look across our portfolio, at least, where I, you know, I have a better sense for the, the businesses and the cash flows and things like that, uh, you know, I, I feel like most of the movement higher in the price of those businesses has, has been justified by two things. First of all, that lower interest rate. Uh, and secondly, mm. for, for many businesses in that universe, uh, this COVID environment has accelerated the pre-existing trends that were in place for many of the businesses within our portfolio, but across our universe as well, particularly anything that had some sort of digital 
exposure. Um, yeah. You know, we've we've all sort of probably seen the e-commerce growth numbers and the, the digital payments numbers and cloud computing numbers and all that sort of digital economy has really accelerated and benefited from this COVID environment. So that would also support the higher prices that you are seeing as well, as well as the lower long-term interest rates. The fact that the cash flow profiles for certain businesses uh, has been brought forward or is, you know, is in fact superior than it was pre-COVID, that would also argue for a higher um, higher intrinsic value and, and therefore a higher share price for those businesses also. Fair enough. One, one last thing, I, you know, before I hand it back to, to Colgo and James, because I'm, I'm, I'm sure they're reaching to ask a few bits and pieces. But <laughs> good, good. Uh, the, the, the Fed's out there in the secondary market buying debt and whatever else. And even if they weren't, let's face it, uh, to issue debt, if you're a high quality company issuing debt and whatever else, it's, you know, look, money's free these days. There's, there's no arguing about it. My first mortgage, retail wise, whatever, I was paying 18 odd percent in Australia. So anything sub, I think, 5% even on an official cash rate to me, it's free money, right? So I suppose. The Fed's out there buying debt in, in the secondary market. Uh, to issue debt, even in the primary, is quite cheap, especially if you're a quality uh, institution. The Bank of America um, fund manager survey, just, just out for, for the previous week, um, th- there was an interesting note in it that in the, of those participants surveyed, 57% or thereabouts would prefer that companies, rather than investing even though they've got all this uh, free cash, as it were, rather than investing in further capex, they would much rather uh, that these companies start paying down whatever debt they've uh, amassed thus far, while it is still cheap to pay it off, and then look at you know um, growth or, or, or reinvesting potential capital. And that goes back to, I suppose, what you mentioned earlier, that you, know, you look at, uh, as part of your screen, how companies reinvest their capital, what they, what they look to do. So... So my question to you is, you know, what's your take on it? Would you rather they paid debt down? Would, would you rather they reinvested that capital and how so? And how, how do you see that? I think the way to answer that is we want companies to reinvest whichever way, uh, given their opportunity set of investment opportunities, we want them to invest at the highest rate of return for shareholders. Sure. Um, and that yeah. will be different for different businesses. And that's why I started um, – with the objective, hopefully, that these management teams and the board are investing in the highest return projects. That might be, for some businesses, investing internally, you know, funding a store rollout, for example, for a retailer mm. or for a restaurant company can be incredibly value accretive um, if they're reinvesting those cash flows in new restaurants at very high rates of return. Um, some businesses just don't require much incremental capital to grow. You know, we've, we've long uh, been shareholders in a business like Visa, uh, and it just doesn't require much capital each year that goes by, uh, yet it has these secular tailwinds funding the growth in it, but that, that growth doesn't require much new capital. So it's appropriate for a business like that if it can't find ways of redeploying that internally at very high rates to think about, well, can it you know, inorganically invest at very high rates? Uh, so mergers no. and acquisitions and things, most companies have a pretty poor record of that. So that's something that we think about within that agency risk assessment that I mentioned earlier. Um, mm-hmm. And we'd, for most businesses and most management teams, uh, we'd prefer they, they not do that because there's a very few management teams that do have a track record of being able to do it successfully and create value for, for shareholders. But there are some companies that can do that. Of course, 
look at what Berkshire Hathaway's done, you know, over decades and things sure. like that. Um, and for some other companies, uh, the the most sensible and rational use of capital might be to pay down debt. Um, it, it's uh, you could almost argue the other way at the moment, you know, because to your point, um, some of that debt capital is so cheap. Yeah. Um, maybe they're better off raising capital if they can find the right uses for that debt capital that they've raised. You know, that's at the end of the day, that's what we're trying to um, trying to maximize in our portfolio as businesses that have the highest levels of return and can generate the, you know, the most attractive risk adjusted compounding um, for clients and for shareholders uh, over long periods of time. Can I I ask quickly what you think in that world about, um, more ephemeral uh, sort of investments, like so, take an Atlassian, um, which invests a lot in R and D. Yeah. Right. So it can't point to what it's go- it's going to take a stack of money, billions of dollars, and uh-huh. pour it into R and D, and you know, let's see what comes out the other side. You know, so they might create a new industry out of that, or they might burn a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, so how, how do you how do you think about that? It really requires, and I'll go back to that sort of inch wide, mile deep research, it really requires getting in the weeds uh, of these businesses and understanding what they're investing in. If they're investing through the P&L, through expenses like marketing or R&D, sales, et cetera, uh, whether they're investing um, through capital expenditure or whether they're investing inorganically through buying new businesses, um, you really need to sort of pull apart each, each different business uh, and try and, as best you can, study the um, the returns that they're making from those incremental investments. And sometimes it's not apparent for a long time. Um, you know, we've just done a, a lot of work in terms well, I haven't done it. One of our analysts has done a great, great job just uh, initiating recently on Netflix, which is a business that forever was accused of not generating any profits and cash flows and, and still, you know, you wouldn't argue is very profitable yet. And that's because... They do make a lot of. Uh, uh, they do generate a lot of cash flow and a lot of profits. They just reinvest it all. To, to your point, and so it's incumbent on us then to think about what the return they're earning on those incremental investments are. And I think for a business like Netflix and what Reed Hastings has done there uh, over decades now is reinvest to build something that's incredible. You know, it, it scale dwarfs all of its competitors. It's got a, a, an amazing and increasing content library. Um, but it hasn't been able to show any profits for that because all of the capital generated from new subscribers and existing subscribers has been funneled into more content investments. And that's been the flywheel. Uh, and he's built something very, very impressive on the back of that model, but it hasn't generated much in the way of excess or returnable profits yet. That day may come. Um, and we have to make that assessment around whether he can scale those investments eventually, but it sort of requires going into the the economics of each business to understand that. Yeah, well, there's another there's another very comparable business uh, uh, to Amazon, which exactly. didn't turn profit for a very long time. Yeah, uh, and now. businesses. Yeah. Yes. Well, that's funny. You know, it, it, with the same lens on, it probably was very profitable decades ago. It just chose to take those excess profits and reinvest it in their cloud business and then their advertising business and their logistics business and their media business. And that's why you've got a business as dominant as it is today across so many different industries. And it's not like he didn't say he wasn't going to do those things either. It's uh, very, very, very open in the letter. So let's stick with the energy that we've got here, um, talking stocks, if we may. Uh, so now I, I, it might be difficult for you to talk about weaknesses. I'm sorry if, if that's okay. But you know, <laughs> yeah, see, and, and I've noticed this too. It took me a long time to, to, to come to terms with the fact that there's some parts of the market where I just, it's like, it's like going into a casino. I can understand how to play blackjack. I don't, 
someone tries to explain Baccarat to me, yep. I, I'm sorry, I will never understand how to play this game. I just, I'm just, I'm just going to hand you my money and you, you go for it for me. So that, 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 that similar thing. Someone tries to explain certain sectors to me, I just, I, I'm sorry, it's just not going to happen for me. What, what you mentioned before getting into the weeds and really getting into the thick of it. Are there yep. some areas and some sectors where you're just like, I just, it's just not going to happen? Yeah, I'd say at a personal level, yes, um, absolutely. And then there are certain sectors, even at Magellan, we've decided to exclude for, for, for different reasons. Some we've excluded just because we don't think we're going to find very high-quality businesses. In, and they tend to be more commoditised industries. Um, what, meaning? You want to go into that? Oil and gas oh, okay. and energy and resources and things like that, um, where we don't feel like we have a particular edge in that space. And most of those businesses, because they're dealing in commodities at the end of the day, very hard to judge um, for most of them, and I know there, there are exceptions, but, but for most of them, knowing where competitive advantage will reside in a value chain five years and 10 years and 15 years from now, it's just harder to us yep. uh, in some of those, those businesses. And then, look, personally, of course, we've all got our own sort of circle of competence. And I would say that, you know, there's other industries, um, biotech, for example, you know, or s- certain technical aspects of, of health, um, you know, it could be completely lost. Um, and, uh, you know, that would be a long list of businesses where I don't feel like I have a particular deep understanding of the businesses, the economics, um, but that's okay. You know, that, that is genuinely one of the advantages I think we have of running these concentrated portfolios is we get to a- apply a lot of good filters um, and really restrict the, uh, the, the universe and the opportunity set down to things that, that sort of tick, tick all the boxes for us. So I was, I was just going to ask, Chris, steering, let's say, you know, steering clear of commodities or at least avoiding that. So does that, does that mean that, uh, the EM world, the emerging markets world, is sort of not on the on the tasting menu, as it were. I mean, obviously, EM isn't strictly commodities, but a large chunk of their listed entities sort of are in and around that space. So, does that mean you stick generally to developed markets and the large caps associated accordingly? Generally, yes, uh, I think that's right. I'd say the exclusion in those emerging markets. Certainly, to your point, might be because some of those emerging markets do skew more towards oil and resources, for example. Um, it might also be because of the liquidity filter that I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, they're yeah. just smaller businesses, smaller market caps, less liquidity uh, would also apply. And also, you know, just the um, relative lack of really high quality businesses in some of those um, some of those markets and economies. And again, sort of speaks to the fact that a lot of those economies skew towards more commoditized industries uh, just means there's not going to be the same abundance of really high quality businesses. But, um, you know, we've found some incredibly high quality businesses in China, uh, for example, um, particularly within the tech space, uh, a business like Ambev, you know, the, the largest brewer over in Brazil is an incredible business, great franchise. We've covered that for many, many years. So, you know, there, there are plenty of very good businesses, large enough um, emerging market businesses, uh, so it's not just a developed market uh, focus for us. But I would say the, the, we're finding more and have found more over time in the developed markets than the emerging markets. But you know we're, we're very open minded around so long as it's high quality, so long as it's liquid, so long as it's got great economics and, and sort of long term compounding potential. We're fairly agnostic in terms of uh, the location. Well, recent recent uh, recent entries into the Hang Seng Index would be so last week Alibaba, JD, 
uh, Xiaomi, I can never pronounce it, I'm not going to go for it. The phone guys, uh, Xiaomi, I'm, I'm going to shoot for it. Yep. But they won't let them go over 5% because of the, the separate, uh, the class, the classes of shares that they've got. They've got multiple classes of shares, which they don't like. So, so they, they can only list 5% of their- They can only have 5% on the on the index, so so that you can model against the index. So, so which is interesting that they've done that. Now let's stick with China because we've got to stay fresh sure. um, as a podcast. So what's your latest Chinese- um, Inputs? Can we talk direct stonks? Yeah, on yeah, this one? yeah, of course. Okay, yep. so. uh, everything we've disclosed publicly, so there, oh, there's nothing that's off limits. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Okay, so what's your latest Chinese take? Uh, so the two businesses uh, within the Global Fund and both also within the High Conviction Fund, direct China exposures would be Alibaba and Tencent, you know, the, the two yep. leaders really over there in the digital uh, economy, yep. um, two incredibly dominant businesses. Um, and in some areas they overlap, but in other areas they are clearly the, uh, the leader within that, that sector. Um, so maybe if we do the companies, I can sort of come back and talk about macro, uh, well, if, yeah, if that was part of the, the question the, as well. The, the eventual place that I'm going to get to is what the Chinese versus US situation with an election sure. coming up. Just yep. to, uh, uh, You can sort of see where I'm going there. So preface, <laughs> do, do whatever you want, knowing that that's going to be the next stage that yeah, I'm going okay. to. We'll yeah. give it you know, the, uh, a snapshot on each of those businesses and then, yes, we can bring it back. For to, sure, because they are fascinating businesses. So yeah, yeah, And they're yeah. relatively less understood, I'd say, by Australian and, and most investors outside of China because we have less interaction with those businesses, obviously, on a daily basis compared to other Western businesses and brands. So Alibaba, um, very quickly... Very, very dominant e-commerce business in China has about 60, just over 60, 60% market share of all e-commerce in China. Um, it's two online marketplaces, Taobao and Tmall, um, account for about 16% of all retail trade in China. So it's just, it's, it's fascinating how dominant that business is. Um, it's also the largest cloud computing business uh, in China, about three times the size of its nearest rival. Um, has a large digital media business. And really one of the most exciting things about Alibaba is what they're going to do, what they plan to do in terms of digitising the Chinese economy, Uh, particularly on the enterprise side, you know, leveraging that cloud business, leveraging their e-commerce business and their logistics capabilities and sort of really connecting in a very digital way many, many industries uh, across China Uh, and speaking to that digital thematic that I mentioned earlier. And then Tencent... um, to an Australian audience, maybe the best place to start with a business like Tencent is to kind of think of it a bit like a Facebook in the sense that they channel through their WeChat social media and messaging app. WeChat is owned by Tencent. About 1.2 billion Chinese people use that uh, actively yep. you know, on a sort of daily or monthly basis. You know, In a country with 1.4 billion people, 1.2 billion people using your service is obviously an incredible audience. It's effectively replaced email. Yeah, that's yep. right. Well, it's replaced yep. all number of things, but it's banking, taxi, I have it. booking. It's, uh, yeah, it's 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 pretty good. It's effectively the uh, the equivalent to WhatsApp here, except just with all this other stuff. Yeah, so, that's right. Yeah. A yeah. super app. Yeah, um, and it's effectively, I guess, the the digital or, or the portal really through which Chinese citizens are engaging in digital activities, and so that funnel allows Tencent to channel that audience and all their engagement towards a very large and dominant gaming business. They got the largest online gaming business on the planet. Um, as you mentioned, there's a leading payments business where they compete with uh, Alibaba, Alibaba and Tencent, uh, number one and two in terms of digital payments. Yep. Um, uh, Tencent also has a very large media subscription business. So think of like a Spotify and a Netflix business model sitting within Tencent. Um, also has a very large cloud business. 
um, also has a very large book of investments in other very interesting Chinese and, and Western companies as well. So it's a large shareholder in Pindodo, uh, PDD, uh, in Meituan, in JD.com, uh, also has large investments uh, in Tesla, Spotify, so a number of Western companies as well. So a ver- two very, very dominant Chinese businesses. And we would regard them as Chinese businesses with sort of direct China exposure. We also then have some other holdings in the portfolios uh, that have a indirect exposure to China. They're non-Chinese businesses with China exposure. And easy example would be something like a Starbucks, mm-hmm. um, which has you know, nearly 5,000 stores or cafes on the ground over there. Uh, it'll open 500 cafes this year uh, in, in China, notwithstanding COVID. You know, that, that's more than one new cafe on the ground every, every day. Um, and they'll probably ramp that up to 600 plus new cafes. And there's a very long-term opportunity to just continue rolling out cafes in China, um, which is a, a country they've been in for two decades already. So they've proved the concept work. They've already got 5,000 stores. They're much, much bigger than their nearest Western rival. Their leading domestic rival um, just imploded. You know, they <laughs> got found cooking the books. Um, so Wasn't that a thing? Lucky in coffee. Yeah, that's right. Um, so they're, they're a business very well positioned. But, but China is just a, you know, it's a relatively small part of Starbucks today. It's a very important part of their growth. Mm. So it'll become an increasingly important part over time. Yeah, I remember Hamish talking about the average coffee consumption. It's a tea-drinking country, obviously, China. But uh, at the, your conference last year, I believe yeah. it was, when I was there, and he was, he was crying about just the, the average coffee consumption of the Chinese consumer is only like – one cup a week, or in, yeah. so it's, it's it's was it? Did I get that I right? Think, I think I think it's a cup a day. Whereas, yeah. of course, here in Australia and in the US, it's it's closer to three hundred cups. Yeah, a day. That's sorry, three hundred cups a year. No, no, that's just me. Yeah. <laughs> the um, so the yes, yeah, so, so obviously there's a huge growth market that's it provided that they do switch from being a tea drinking company or or, or allow themselves more yep. beverages in that space, which is good. So okay, let's talk about the elephant in the room then, which is going to be the separation. You know, the separation of Trump versus China coming up. There's an election. They both yep. poll. Biden and Trump both poll really well on it. Uh, Trump obviously. Tencent owns uh, WeChat. WeChat. Tencent owns WeChat, uh, right? Tencent owns WeChat, and there's an obvious situation coming up where also the, you know, the 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 gang of teenagers. It's all it's all about his ego, isn't it? The gang of teenagers that on TikTok, TikTok, which is owned by ByteDance, they were the ones that staged the the fake ticketing thing on his Tulsa rally, and so he's going after. You've got to just think that it's all. So cynical. Sorry, that's I'm taking Ken's role on this one. Sorry, mate. But, it's, uh, but anyway, so, right. so, he's right. so he's obviously gone after the Chinese companies. So, uh, like, let's play this tape to the end, yep. through, to, through to November at least, because after that, who cares? Yep. Um, what's your play? Um, for the moment, the play is to do nothing. Um, you know, we've, I think, calibrated the portfolio for this risk. We've been thinking about this for a little while, the decoupling yep. between the US and China. Um We've, we're probably most concerned about it um, back in early 2019 when our largest position at the time was Apple. And, you know, we sort of recognised Apple, a bit like Starbucks is a, a Western business with a large dependence on China, both in terms of sales of iPods and, um, you know, their devices and uh, their services, but also recognising the supply chain integration and the reliance on China for their supply chain. Mm-hmm. Um and it's a technology business. So whereas you can make the argument perhaps, um, perhaps that selling Starbucks and selling coffee to Chinese citizens 
Coffee's probably not a strategic industry. Communist Party may not want too much involvement in that. When you think about 5G communications, mobile phone technology, um, semiconductor technology, all those spaces in which Apple plays, that's probably more front and centre for where the Communist Party is concerned about um, technology superiority and things like that in the years and decades ahead. So we were, we were a bit nervous around not the long-term prospects for Apple, that's a wonderful business, but just the position size going into this world where we could see increasing hostilities before, but between Trump and yeah. and China. Yeah, you can fly under the radar with Starbucks, but with Apple, Apple's going to be front row center if, 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 and also effectively if that, to the letter of the law, Trump's executive order says that US companies have to stop dealing with WeChat, then they have to take it off the App Store. Yeah. That's, yeah, go on. Sorry. Yeah, that's, yeah. Well, that's right. I mean, he's finding more and more channels of, uh, turning up the heat between the the two countries and how much of this is politics um, just leading up to the election, as you mentioned in a couple of months, I think we're we're now under three months Um, time will tell, but it's also true that he's got some pretty hawkish members of his administration. So if he is reelected, would the temperature go all the way back down? I personally doubt it. Um, I think there's going to be some sort of simmering intentions between those two countries. Uh, Regardless, even, even Biden is probably not, um, a full, complete reset. You know, there seems to be some bipartisan support around um, certain issues with respect to, to China, the theft of IP and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Biden would um, would turn the temperature down more than Trump would, uh, but but we'll have to see. Do you think with some of the politics um, that we're seeing, just not, uh, I mean, domestically in the US um, and in parts of Europe uh, and what we've seen in the UK, even though... Uh, things have settled down there a little bit more uh, recently, but it's been quite tumultuous in the last uh, decade in the UK. Yeah. Um, do you think there's more uh, with some of this more these surprise election results, um, more uh, uh, interesting, colourful parties coming forward? Do you think this legislative policy risk is increasing for businesses around the world, and how are you thinking about that? Yeah, it's probably case by case again. Um, and we've got to trace it back to um, our companies, the geographies to which they're exposed in the industries in which they, they operate. Because certain industries have very obviously vastly different legislative risks. You know, US healthcare companies have a very different, and big tech, frankly, in the US probably has a very different uh, regulatory threat compared to something like Starbucks, again. Though even there, things like minimum wages uh, will matter. Uh, for that for that sector going forward. So um, again, sort of flogging the dead horse, but coming back to having that narrow universe, very large, incredibly capable analyst team and being able to go deep on these businesses allows us to sort of get our head around these issues on a company by company basis because even the US tech regulatory threat will be different for Amazon, will be different to Apple, will be different to Facebook, will be different to Alphabet. So when so, you say you get into the weeds, you also get deep into the politics, uh, right? You know, the policy Yeah, the, the policy risks. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, it yeah. kind of speaks to, you know, regulatory threats, I think, depending on the flavour and depending on the company, they, they can either impact that two of those qualitative um, measures that I mentioned earlier. They could really erode a company's moat, potentially, or they could really heighten a company's business risk. So it's, it's pretty central to, to what we do for all of our businesses, um, understanding that policy landscape uh, and the policy risks 
that each of those businesses may be exposed to. Got to ask you about one company um, that I saw. I was looking at uh, some of the um, lists of top holdings, but Estee Lauder. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Talk about that. Uh, Why? Why? (laughs) Hopefully because it's a good investment. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So it is the largest uh, prestige cosmetic skincare company on the planet. The the investment case is kind of similar to to Starbucks, again, where very dominant business, um, but its growth increasingly over time will be uh, sort of riding the Chinese consumption opportunity where they're already very well penetrated. Um, about a third of its business already today in China. And they have a very advanced uh, online digital e-commerce capability in China. That company uh, reports results tonight. So um, I think we'll see, it won't be a surprise, I think, to see uh, their their non-China business, particularly their travel retail business. That's going to be a pretty tough place to have been over the last, you know, quarter. Um, but their, their China business, I suspect, will have performed quite well um, because a lot of that has been transitioning online and probably that transition accelerated. Um, but it still does have a large you know, exposure to department stores, for example, in the US. You know, it's got some cross-currents, certainly, uh, in the short term. But the long term, you know, it's very, very dominant in its categories, first of all, particularly in skincare, which is you know, really the high margin um, profit centre of that business. Uh, and then that skincare business really has the opportunity to kind of ride the long-term consumption upgrade opportunity in China, but not just in China um, uh, and outside, you know, sort of uh, in other emerging markets and developed markets around the world. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, that, um, uh, you know, in some of China's economic data, we've seen, you know, the recovery there, uh, which has been impressive um, since the lockdowns at the start of the year, Um you know, there's talk about how, well, a lot of this isn't where the kind of growth that they want to see, it's more tends to be more on the capital uh, and government side rather than uh, in terms of consumption, which is where China is trying to steer its economy. Right. Um, but uh, at the same time, that pattern of consumption being a much bigger, more active part is not a story. This is a, this is a decades of this ahead. That's right. Yeah. Hopefully yeah, well, that's, <laughs> that's, right. that's the thing. That's the, um, that's the idea um, behind a lot of, you know, whether it's the Alibaba's and the 10 cents directly exposed, whether it's Estee Lauder and Starbucks sort of indirectly exposed that's uh, you know, we, we've spoken a lot already about sort of being in this low rate, low growth world. If you can find opportunities for long-term compounding, such as the China consumption opportunity, particularly the sort of middle to upper end of the socioeconomic pyramid, really where the wealth and the income is being generated and participate in the trade-up um, to sort of premium coffee for Starbucks or premium skin fa- skincare for Estee Lauder. You know, there is the potential for a mid to high to low double-digit runway of growth uh, for these businesses. And, you know, you can have some confidence that those businesses – because of their dominance and because of their quality, will capture at least their fair share of that that growth over time. So, playing that, you know, carrying that on a little bit, then you, you mentioned looking at looking at the market and looking at what's ahead. So let's keep on playing the tape. What where's the big shifting? Because you, you you mentioned that the shutdown and the work from home phenomenon, which is what I'm calling it, yep. has, has accelerated the things that were going to happen anyway. Cloud computing, the digital transformation of the world, yep. um, for example. What do you think the next I mean, feel free, feel free to pass on it and then we'll just, and we'll just toss it around. Okay, we'll pass it, pass on this one. But, but, but what's the next big turning? What's the next exacerbation that's going to happen uh, over the next – it doesn't have to be this month. I mean, we're talking year time, right? Yeah. So. 
Yeah. I mean, there's always, and there's been this for, for quite some time, but, you know, AI mm. um, and the full expression of AI, where you can sort of eventually get not just narrow intelligence, but general intelligence, um, you know, that would be, it's not central to our investment in Alphabet, but if there's any enterprise on the planet outside of China, uh, it'd be hard to think of a business better positioned uh, with deeper AI capabilities than Alphabet. That's right. Um, They'll win the AI war. I'm strongly a believer of that too. Potentially. No, but, I don't know. <laughs> you get to say sure potentially, thing. I don't have to. It's all right, yeah. um, <laughs> and then inside China, I'd, I'd say Ali and Tencent have as good a shot as uh, as any business over there of you know really um, leveraging that opportunity over mm. time. So that could be something. Um, do you do you think do you see there being two internets one day? Uh, potentially, yeah. yeah I mean, you get to say potentially. <laughs> I get to say yeah. I think there will be. It's all right. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think we're already sort of seeing movements in that that direction. I, I reckon there's going to be ten. Yeah. <laughs> or how many countries are recognised? 180 or something by the UN. We'll get our own. Everyone gets an own internet. Yeah. Right, yeah. We'll decide what comes and goes. We've already got the Great Firewall in China, so you can argue to to some extent already we've got at least two. I'm trying to figure out how to play that. Yeah, well, well, the two well, internet. Let thing. me know. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, yeah. That's that's. I'll let you know. We've certainly got our own internet here in Australia. It's called the NBN, and uh, yeah, it works. Trick. I'm not going. I'm not going to keep going. Okay, well, we're going to try. One, we're we're going to wrap up really quickly. But um, I just want to ask you. We're going to try something new on the show. Something we want to start doing, uh, because we don't always. Amazingly enough, we don't all sit around um, thinking about stocks. Uh, I'll speak market. for yourself, Paul. <laughs> That's all I've done. All day, every day. Uh, just wake up. Yeah, first thing in the morning, where's the 10-year at? Um, <laughs> so, um, <laughs> None so, of us like that question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, but, uh, okay, so one non-work thing from this week, James, that was good. Uh, myself and my seven-year-old have been working on the Rubik's Cube. We're almost, almost at the stage where she can do it start to finish um, and complete a Rubik's cube. That's been a, that's been that's been a big effort. It's also a good chance to be close to her and work on a work on an actual thing that has an outcome oh, with, okay. with with a, with a definition of defined event horizon. Um, and also, it's just it's just a hell of a time just getting through it. It takes it's taken a lot of emotion. I've been through a road <laughs> with this. So there's been yelling, there's been tears, there's been crying, there's been broken Rubik's cubes, and now we're just at the stage where and that's just you. Yeah, and no, that's, that's just, just me. Yeah, and then she comes in. I'm just yelling at the at the, at the computer screen, trying to try to try to get the guy to slow down and just tell me, no, okay, so it's 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 just and it's a series of algorithms. It's something I've never done either. I've never been able to do one. Yep. So we're learning it together, and and we 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 got one done, and now we're almost at the stage where we can just. Do, do it together and get there in the end. That's, That's been a good. big moment. How about yeah. you, Chris? Uh, we're still in a work from home environment, so it's it's kind of similar uh, to, to James's point, where more time with the kids has been been wonderful. And I guess it's a personal question, but but you know, I I genuinely love time outdoor, particularly exercising. So if you know, if it's a, a ocean swim, a surf, uh, a bike ride, a run, often with mates, you know, that's that that's wonderful. Mm. Uh, Ken, what about yourself? Uh, well, I was. Uh, it is a different world, and, and to that end, actually, uh, just uh, what was it? Today's Thursday, so Tuesday. I was introduced to the full circle of Dutch life in that the bike that I bought just over a year ago got pinched, oh. came down uh, in the morning, or so. But that's the kuna that's, that's literally the Dutch circle of life. So as a consequence, uh, I've spent the last couple of days uh, looking at, at you know, new bikes, literally new bikes, not secondhand. The insurance of this and that. Uh, the upside is I've gotten to test ride various uh, various bikes, so there's that. You know, I mean, that that's not work. I suppose. Any, any recommendations? So, yeah. We could get a sponsor out of it. 
BSB, which is a, a Dutch company, stands for Bikes uh, Spare Parts. They started life out as a, as a spare parts company. Two sons took over the dad's business, and now they're actually they're making bikes and uh, yeah, good quality or high quality for uh, well, decent. Yeah. These are wedge rollers. So are they listed? Get, get involved. In fact, <laughs> in fact, the cycling revolution has been something that, that back on. It's always back to the investment thesis, isn't it? Something we've been looking at too. It's a Taiwanese company that, that that's run by a lady. Her name has slipped my mind, but yeah, fantastic. It's 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 an investable area. You want to look at it? Thanks for the idea, Ken. <laughs> my, my my thing has been. I've been watching Game of Thrones oh, for the geez. last couple of months uh, on repeat or the first time. Well, for the first time. Oh wow! Because I when it so it got to like series three or something and I just couldn't I, I couldn't keep up with the too many people and people dying and yeah, yeah. you know uh, and I'd miss an episode or two and I'd go back and I'd be like really why is that person in that country now or whatever um, so it has been it is amazing television uh, like some of the battle scenes in it are really incredible and what they did with the dragons uh, like don't I, spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it yet yeah the flagons that's the, what I said yeah, not yeah, the dragons yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, the drag queens yes of course yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it, that's been that has been yeah, really fun. So and I I, I kind of get it now when everybody's like losing their mind about you it know, changes the last of it series, changes so. you though if you watch too many back to back. When I joined VFS, they they'd all been they'd all watched it and I'd and I'd quit it and it was up to about season four and so I had to be the, the, the guy from the Foxtel ad who has to catch up so that he can go on the date with the girl and I watched four seasons over the space of about two weeks. I wasn't. I wasn't quite right in the head, Paul. It took me a while to get it together, but it, was, it, yeah, it, it, yeah. it, it changed. So just just toned it down a bit and just do maybe one a day or something, okay? Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, well, I have to say, yeah, I'm one or two episodes uh, every night and um, maybe three, a cheeky three. Cheeky three on Thursdays. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's been really fun. Um, look, uh, Chris Weldon, uh, Portfolio Manager at Magellan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, this has been a really fantastic chat, and I'm sure for a lot of our listeners, is uh, really insightful and useful in terms of thinking about how people like yourselves. And like I say, Magellan is such a great brand and export for us, uh, Australia. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, the returns have been uh, great. So I'm sure you'll be hoping to keep that up. Hopefully. Yeah, <laughs> that's the plan. Hey, thank you, Paul. Yeah, thanks, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, James, thank you. No, no worries at all. And thanks very much to Redleaf Securities, uh, boutique Australian uh, wealth manager, here and Jane Morgan Management, they do good work too. Got to thank the guys for giving us the office. It is it is fantastic that they've helped us out. But yeah. always good to be here, Ken, uh, Cole. Who are you, Paul and Ken, Paul. and you too, Chris. Mate. It's been fantastic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Thanks, uh, and Ken, how do you say goodbye in Dutch or thank you in Dutch or whatever? Uh, see you later. I, I, I don't know. Uh, no, goodbye is do 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 it. Bye bye. Uh, it's D U I do do it. Do it. So goodbye. But Chris, uh, thank you very much. Been a pleasure and, and really enjoyed learning what equities are and are not. And so I feel a little bit better informed now. Uh, but yeah, thanks guys. A pleasure as always. Okay, thanks, you Kim. can find us on iTunes at The Bip Show. We're on Twitter. It's at the underscore Bip underscore show. And we're on Facebook too. Just search The Bip Show. Individually, we're on Twitter too. Colgo, James Whelan, 42, Ken Vexler too. Don't forget to hit subscribe and rate the show. Uh, and the show is produced by Eamon Connolly and Rick Salter. And we will catch you next time. Thanks for listening.